0: Hello, all of you. I don't know most of you, which I always find ex- oh, my name's Casey, I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. Hi, Casey. And I don't know most of you, which I always find exciting because that means that there are more people from whom I can uh, gather strength and with whom I can form a community, uh, because that's what saves my life. Uh, being in this community. Um, my story is unusual. I don't know if it's unique. I'm not sure anybody's story is unique except with, you know, in a very particular way. We're all unique. But uh, it's unusual. It's the only one I've got, so it's what you're getting. Some of you have <laughs> heard it before. Um, I have... <coughs> It's a very serious disease for me. I've never weighed more with the exception of having been put to bed for two months once when I was in my 20s, and I did zero exercise because I was put to bed. But with that exception, I've never weighed more than I weigh now. I don't wear my disease in that way, but I've almost died of metabolic-related causes five times in my life. Uh, The last one is what got me into these rooms. Uh, in fast order, because it's mostly about the last one that this chair is about and what has resulted from it, which is program, is, uh, my mother had toxemia, so I was being poisoned in the womb, so that wasn't good. Uh, I, uh, came out and had something that they called celiac. I now know it could not have really been celiac, because celiac's incurable, but it was a first cousin of celiac, something like that. And so I uh, lived on soy milk and bananas for the first two and a half years of my life, of my life. My New York City roots are showing. And um, I uh, then was healthy metabolically until I was about six, when I developed some very serious allergies, like scary allergies. I had hives. I was hospitalized, a diagnosis, and uh, I was allergic to about 300 things. Uh, I outgrew the foods by 12. I'm still allergic to two pharmaceuticals. Unfortunately, they're not essential pharmaceuticals. Um, I um, then went through high school, went through college. Uh, In my senior year of college, I had, well, throughout my sophomore, junior, and part of my senior year in college, I had one boyfriend who, I cared about him, he cared about me, but uh, he didn't want to marry me, imagine that, and we were both very young, and in retrospect, we would have gotten divorced, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he didn't want to marry me, and I didn't say, would, could we get married, could we talk about this? Mm-hmm. So instead, I did some terrible things to him, I'll get to how I made amends, but up to step nine, I hope to give you my story in brief, and then talk about my story in line with the steps. That's how I like to do long shares. But uh, what um, happened is that because I had the genetic predisposition, it wouldn't happen to most people, I became a type 1 diabetic. And he had a nervous breakdown. He dropped out of school, went back a year later. So, I mean, it was pretty bad. And uh, so I became a type 1 diabetic. That was the fourth time I've almost died of metabolic causes, causes because, you know, I was undiagnosed and I was very, very sick. I... At diagnosis, I weighed about 40 pounds less than I weigh now because basically you're starving to death while you're eating because if you don't take your insulin or you don't have your insulin, you don't metabolize food. Um, And I was living a pretty normal type 1 diabetic life. I uh, finished college, although there was only a month or so left. I took off a couple of years, did some work in between college and graduate school, went to graduate school, ended up marrying a guy who I'm lucky. I still love my first husband who still loves me. And, um, you know, we, um, things things were pretty good. Uh, I'm a New York City girl. Uh, really love community and care about life. When I was 43, three I moved out to California. We moved out to California. My husband was sitting at his desk and he was offered a well, he wasn't offered a job, he was offered an opportunity to interview for a job that he interviewed for and got in California and Los Angeles. It made sense to move, even though my career was kind of gangbusters. I mean the trade paper in my business said I was the best in New York at doing what I do. But I left that behind because it did make sense to leave that behind. Because his, this offer was so wonderful. And, uh, so we moved to California. I learned how to drive 43. And, uh, so, uh, it all started to work out reasonably okay. Now, to back further up to my childhood, um, I was raised by a true narcissist, somebody who's been diagnosed by people besides her daughter. And, uh, you know, so, um... you know, I mean, the world revolved around her, and like many narcissists, not all, but like many, she really is fascinating and smart and interesting and the life of the party, and if you're not her child, you'd love to be with her, you know, but don't depend upon her for anything like emotional sustenance. So uh, what happens to people whose parents are narcissists is we either implode or explode, And I had exploded. So I had reached out to all sorts of people in my life from the time I was a little kid. I had a large community of friends and professional friends, even before I really had a profession, but people who I did sort of interesting things with. I worked my first political campaign at 12, so I couldn't vote yet. But, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, so we moved to California, and I realized only in retrospect that although I didn't feel very good about myself because how could I? I had never been you know, nurtured in a way that leads to that. I felt loved. I knew I felt loved because I'd have to be entirely blind not to know that I was loved by my husband and a number of other people, but I didn't feel lovable. It was luck. It was pure luck that I was loved, and I was very lucky, but uh, I didn't feel lovable. Uh, so we get out here, and I had mostly in my career but somewhat in my personal life as well all these people who cared about me who liked me and I realized in retrospect that I didn't like me but most days I would have breakfast lunch dinner drinks whatever with somebody who liked me and it would last for 24 36 hours so I didn't like me it didn't matter you like me so I like me for at least 24 hours and uh, I got out here and Nobody disliked me. Nobody knew me. I was here I am by myself, also not working for the first time in my adult life because I was doing things like buying a house, uh, driving my daughter to school because I was trying to get to know the place, figuring out where I was going to work here. I was not going to have my own company here. That made no sense. I didn't know most of the people in my business. And um, so it took a couple of years for me to join the parent program. Because I, you know, went overboard with the, with the, uh, inebriants, other inebriants, and what happens? What mole happens. We all, those of us who have more than one program. I do think it's possible to work more than one program. By the way, I work three, but it's not easy. And uh, so, I um, started to eat more than I had been eating because I was, I needed to numb my feelings, or at least to have momentary pleasure. Uh, numbness and pleasure get confused because I'm an addict and uh, so um, that's what happened but uh, what also happened is that I should back up a bit because I've been diabetic since I was 21 and I'm now 43 within the first few years of being diabetic I discovered something that many diabetics know about uh, mostly women but men too sometimes called diabulimia I've never stuck my finger down my throat. I'm nonetheless a diabetic. I'm diabetic, that too, but I'm nonetheless a bulimic. Because if I don't take my insulin, I don't metabolize my food. That's what happened at diagnosis. That's why I weighed so little. So for a day, a meal, seldom more than a whole day, and seldom a whole day, I would not take my insulin. And uh, I could not metabolize my food, and I could stay thin. Um... When I put down the inebriants, the other inebriants, I uh, started to eat a lot more and I surely didn't want to put on the amount of weight that I would put on if I metabolized all the food I was eating. That sounded like a terrible idea to me. So uh, I started to engage in diabulimia more and more and more. I got sick and then stopped. I got sick and then stopped. So... In the summer of 2001, I was going off to New Hampshire. I used to spend a fair amount of time in New Hampshire when I lived in New York City. We had friends up there, and my husband couldn't go. He was working. My daughter and I were going to a place that we used to go to in the summer for some conferences, and a conference, not they they have more than one, but we went to one particular one and um, I'm going to this little island off the coast of New Hampshire. My father, who still lived in New York at that time, was going to meet us in Boston. We were going to take the boat, right? And um, I am really sick now. I mean, really sick. You know, I've got what's called ketoacidosis. For those of you who know, if you don't know it, it doesn't matter. Uh, But trust me, I am no longer able to simply take insulin on my own and get better. I would have to have been hospitalized and watched. So, um, you know, I'm vomiting all over the plane and, I mean, not all over the plane, in the bathroom, but, you know, um, and we get there and I'm very, very sick that night. We're going to take the boat the next morning. My father says, what should I do? At this point, he's 85, God bless him. He uh, lived to 94 and um, he, I said, you call 911, please, you know, and get me in the hospital. So that was the fifth time I've almost died of metabolic causes, and that was the only time it was ever at my own hand. And uh, that was the time that got me into program. Because I'm in the other program, I had heard of Overeaters Anonymous. I had never gone to a meeting. I didn't really know that there was separate literature. I didn't know diddly squat except that it existed. And existing was good, you know, because I sure needed it. I sure needed to do something other than kill myself because when I get to talking about the steps, you know, part of my insanity is that I effectively was killing myself but didn't want to. I mean, there's a different, there's perhaps, insanity if you want to kill yourself and you do. But I didn't want to, and I was anyway. And uh, so I um, got back from that little island. First I got out of the hospital in about five days. Went to the island for two days because it was a week-long trip. And uh, came back to Los Angeles in the days before the internet, um, I called up central office and was sent a, uh, meeting schedule, and I went to a meeting, um, my first meeting ever was on Hiroshima Day, August 6th, uh, 2001, I don't, I always think that's a nice little irony, and things were certainly pretty bad in my life, and, uh, Are there any newcomers who've come in after the start of the meeting? Because it was on Hill Street and I didn't know how to get there, so I came in after the start of the meeting. And, uh, yes, and almost from day one, I knew that I found a home. I knew that you guys thought about food and eating the way I did, which is that it is some combination, sometimes off and on, of anesthetic and extreme pleasure and self-torture. I mean, I also did it in some ways to punish myself because I knew that I'd get sick, but it was all very mixed up in my head, you know, definitely in need of psychology, uh, psychological help. And so I, um, you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first, I think it's 42, it might be 43 pages, are all about step one. Uh, you know, if you don't get step one, you don't get anything, because, uh, you know, why do we want to, uh, do all this difficult, humbling, sometimes embarrassing stuff, unless we know that if we don't do it, you know, think, like, the gig is up, and I knew that my gig was up, I knew that I had crawled off a hospital bed close to coma, uh, to get in here, in fact, um, I, In that hospital bed, because I knew about the steps from the previous year or so, um, a year and a half, I'm curled up in a little ball on the bed in a strange town. Oh, I have to say, my poor dad, God bless him. Um, The doctor was asked by my father, I was in and out of consciousness, Uh, the doctor was asked by my father, is she going to live? And the doctor said, I don't know, the next 24 hours will tell. So this poor old guy had to, like, wonder if I was going to live. Somebody once pointed out to me that I was entirely arrogant to have the opinion I'm about to share, and I was, because I didn't know. But I felt I knew. I felt I knew I was going to live. If somebody had asked me, I nobody asked me, because I had been sicker at diagnosis. That I knew. I knew I had been sicker at diagnosis. And, you know, because if you're that sick, you know what you feel like. And so I... um Came back here, uh, knew that um, I was powerless over food and overeating and undereating and particularly diabulimia. I was totally powerless, and I knew that my life had become unmanageable because look where I managed to get. And uh, so, you know, step two uh, came, you know, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I had no problems with thinking I was insane in not every aspect of my life, but other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? You know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, there were many aspects of my life where I was quite sane, but they were trumped by how insane I was about food and insulin and diabulimia and overeating and all of that stuff. So um, I, you know, my version of a higher power I'm here to say on a podcast, I say it in big rooms, I say it in small rooms, I know it's not all that common, but it's also far from unique, I really am an atheist in terms of a creative intelligence. I'm not an atheist in terms of believing in love and connection, I believe in love and connection all over the place. You know, I was, in spite of my mother being a narcissist, or maybe because of it, uh, I was raised in the civil rights movement, she worked for James Farmer, she worked for the Congress of Racial Equality... You know, all sorts of interesting people came in and out of my home when I was a kid. And, you know, I believed the connection and people helping each other. Uh, So uh, I had no problems with believing that I could rely on the community of Overeaters Anonymous. Even if I, you know, one or two or 12 of you that I couldn't rely on, there were enough people here I could rely on. And, uh, you know, Bless Roseanne, uh, may she rest in peace for the afterlife I don't believe in. But, uh, you, know, was, um, you know, she she was I'm happy she had a gambler friend. I'm happy she went to Gamblers Anonymous. I'm happy that she figured out that she had a problem that she could start a program about. Because otherwise, I'd be in big trouble, I'd probably be dead. And so, um, you know, I could be restored to sanity by working a program, and believing in you folks. Uh, So, um, turn my power, turn my um, life over to, I'm I'm literally going to crib from the steps, which I normally know, but I'm a little bit nervous up here. I give long chairs about once every year and a half, and uh, so uh, I've been here, I think, once before. So, I made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Well, God bless Ed as we understood him, Mr. Ed, thank you. And, uh, you know, and um, I was perfectly happy to turn my will and my life, uh, happy might be the wrong word, I was willing and mostly happy to turn my will and my life over to the care of you folks, you know, over to the care of people who really work a program. I think there are all sorts of ways to not work a program and still be in the rooms, but if you work a program, I don't actually care if your focus in any particular moment is on step four, or step ten, or step, you know, eleven. I mean, they all end up for me at least. But I think for people who do it, they're all merging. You know, uh, not maybe not the first time we hear about them or go through them, but they all merge. I live a fair amount of my life in six and seven because I think those are the toughies, you know. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, I was happy to turn my will and my life over to the program. Now I had to make a uh, searching and fearless moral inventory, right? Um, I did my inventory in the other program. Uh, I didn't have that many resentments, but I had them. I had made my amends in the other program. I'll get to that later, because that's the most interesting one. And in terms of just fun stories, I mean, you know, and um, so um, I didn't have that much left by the time I got in here and got up to the fourth step. I mean, I can't tell you I didn't resent anybody, but I'm also very, very, very lucky. I have to start there. I have developed a life where, fortunately, I don't spend much time with people I don't like. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I've got, I work for myself. I work in a business where I might be able to make more money if I spent more time with people I don't like. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I, I don't. And I'm actually not sure I could make more money because I wouldn't behave well around people I don't like. You know, so when I say I don't have resentments, I don't have that many resentments. Of course, I have some. I don't have that many resentments because... I don't have that many situations that bring up resentment. I mean, I've had some big ones in my life, a few of you know, and I'll probably get around to it. But in terms of hard numbers, there aren't, there aren't that many. And so I made my inventory. I told my sponsor sponsors, okay, I walk in these rooms and... The statistics out of the way, I walked in in August 2001. As I say, my abstinence date is October 2006. It took a while because what I wanted was an abstinence that many people have. I would suspect, you know, a number of you in this room have the abstinence I would want. The abstinence I would want is three meals a day, nothing in between, except as needed in my case if my blood sugar is low. Uh, And I did that. At the most, I got seven months. Uh, I usually got a few weeks. I got a few months. Sometimes I only got several days. So I kept on starting again and starting again and starting again. And I was a disappointment to sponsors perhaps in that way for sure that I don't like to call my sponsor every day. And I don't have my sponsees call me every day. I've got four sponsees in this program. And a uh, call is needed, but call at least a couple of times a month. There's no schedule. If I can, you know, I take the call when I take the call. If it's important I call you back, please also email or text me at the same time, and then I'll get to you promptly. Otherwise, I'll get to you within 12 or 24 hours if I'm busy. And uh, so um, I, uh, you know, the way I got my sponsor, oh, the way I got my abstinence, that's the sponsor interrelated story. I felt like a total failure. You know, I'm not getting abstinent. And finally, one of my sponsors, probably about my fourth or fifth in the first few years, um, said, well, you feel like a failure. I said, yes. And, well, why don't you find an abstinence that you can keep that's not ridiculous? You know, mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, walking 100 steps a day or what, you know, whatever it might be. Find something that you think makes sense that you can keep. So my abstinence is a real bulimic abstinence. If I eat it, I metabolize it. If I eat it, I take insulin for it. Uh, I have not run a purposely high blood sugar pretty much since 2001, but I wasn't calling it my abstinence since 2001. I decided that was my abstinence in 2006. And almost instantly, my physical health was better since about 2001, not as good as it is more recently because... I just get better at doing this stuff both medically and spiritually. But um you know it's um it's pretty good and God bless her she's still a friend. Uh you know I developed an absence that I will be 10 in October and uh you know I I don't feel like a total failure anymore. Uh I didn't stop coming back but I didn't enjoy feeling like a failure. Uh so um step five, reading this inventory to people, and one of my other sponsors, who I worked with actually quite well, but she left town. That was, uh, I think we could have kept working together. By the way, I have a history of asking people to sponsor me who I just want to sponsor me, and my current sponsor and that person, um, they had no room for me, Uh, and I waited. I waited for the person I'm about to, story I'm about to tell, and I waited for my current sponsor. Sometimes, my current one, I think I waited about three years. I had heard her on a, on a CD from a talk that she gave uh, in New York. And when I met her, I said, oh, you're that person. Because she had recovered from hardcore bulimia. And I said, oh, I want you. And, uh, you know, the sponsor I'm about to describe uh, is somebody who uh, left town. Oh, thank you. but. um well, I may not have time for questions, but I'll stay afterwards because I'm, like, a third of the way through my story. And uh, so I know we started a little later than usual, too. So um, what happened is um, that um, she had the ACA fourth step. You know, basically it's a biography. So I read her my biography. I don't think that's necessary at all. I've been people through the... Fourth Step, the real, you know, uh, for those of you who may not know, it's Adult Children of Alcoholics. It's, it's a biography. It was, you know, a couple hundred questions. Like, in sixth grade, what do you remember about sixth grade, right? You know? And uh, so um, she knew everything about me. Step six and seven. I said this the other day in an old, literally yesterday, I think, and an old timer came up to me after uh, a meeting I was at. Uh, where he was leading, and he said, oh, I never heard that before. Where'd you get it? I got it from my uh, beverage program sponsor, but I believe it, and I've believed it for years. I don't think Bill had a writing problem. I think he meant to use different words in 6 and 7. Uh, I don't think she invented it, by the way. I'm sure she heard it from somebody. But, um, you know, when he talks about character defects and shortcomings, uh, character defects – I will probably die with some, most, all of my character defects. My heart, my worst one is, by the way, impatience. But um, shortcomings are acting out on my character defects. I do not believe in thought crimes. Uh, The fact that I can, you know, think that, you know, if I'm waiting to pull into a parking space and somebody's in the middle of a phone call and they don't want to talk and drive and I have to wait there five minutes, I don't want to say, you know, can't you just pull out? But if I don't honk my horn or do something else, I have a character defect. I don't have a shortcoming, and uh, you know maybe I will stop. Uh, you can talk to me about the rest of the steps, except that I think twelve is crucial because if we don't uh, give it away, uh, we can't keep it. As I say I got sponsees. I say yes when I can to talks. So, by the way, thank you, Veronica, in absentia, uh, for asking me to speak. So I'll close it the questions. Thank you. Are there questions? Hi, thank you for your share. Um, my name is Paula, May name is a little um, And you said there was a difference between num- numbing and pleasure, numbness and pleasure. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Expand on the, what I think the difference is between be- becoming numb and just feeling the pleasure. Um, I'll talk about my experience. That's all I can talk about. If I'm going to eat a food that gives me pleasure, that is a food I should not be eating if I'm, you know, really abiding by what I'd like to think of as overeaters and Uh It does give me pleasure for the moments I'm eating it, which are pretty short, you know. I mean, no matter how much you drag out something, it's minutes, you know. And afterwards, because I feel so guilty, so embarrassed, so awful, I've created a numbing sensation. Afterwards, I then feel guilty, shame, you know. Uh, but, um, it's mostly temporal. I think the difference between numbing and pleasure is temporal. <laughs> Susan. Thank you. Um, could you tell us about the amends you made to your old boyfriend? Oh, thank you. I'd, yes, I'd love to tell you about the amends I made to my old boyfriend. So I did terrible things to him. Basically, uh, you know, I um uh, we we were in a tiny college, my college graduating class had fifty one people. And um I was upset, so I purposely made it my business to so I could sleep with everybody on his dormitory floor so he could see that I was, here doing this. And, uh, you know, bad, bad. And uh, so um, we, he stopped talking to me, surprised. And um, so years went by, and I'm going to, I'm going to my 25th college reunion shortly after I joined the other program, about six months later, and I uh, knew that if I saw him, I would feel horrible about myself. I mean, not that I'd feel horrible about him. So I asked my sponsor, I said, can I jumpstart the ninth step? I was not yet on the ninth step. I said, just for this one. She said, of course. So I knew where he had last worked. It was a place that probably had about 100 employees. I wasn't certain he was still there. I called up the place. Somebody answers the phone. I said, hello, I'm trying to reach so-and-so. He says this is so and so. The chances of him answering that phone—he was near or at the top of the pecking order, probably near, not at—and so that was tiny, and tiny chance. And I said, I said, you know, this is this is my name, and uh, I'd like to, uh, you know, send you a letter or have a phone call. He said, here's my email address. So I quickly wrote him an email saying I had done these terrible things. You did not deserve it. More to the point. I behaved horribly. He wrote back to me in an email saying, Oh, there was all sorts of other stuff going on in my life at that point, which there was. And he said, It really wasn't you. I don't care if that's true. I don't care if that's true. It may have been that his parents were doing whatever they were doing, it may have been whatever. All I can tell you is that about six weeks after that email exchange, I went to that college reunion and I saw him several times. And I've seen him at college reunions since. I go about every five years to my college reunion. And we say, hello, we're fine, it's all good, I mean, it's all good enough, you know, it's the worst thing I've ever done, but that's, yeah, so. Yes? Okay. Um, yeah, when you said you have, like, the typical like, app plans, but, like, pretty much like, you eat it, you own it, um, how did you come back from, like, being in, like, when you eat in two Does that like, and like, how do you come back that Well it might I don't I don't gorge ever. I mean that's just maybe you know, the, because I work a well enough program where I'm lucky. I don't know. I mean, but when I overeat and I do overeat and I often often I don't know about often, you know, once a month maybe, eat something that no type one diabetic has any business ever eating. You know, I could have a piece of cheesecake or something. right? I, just, I should never do that, but I do. And, uh, you know, it's um, what I, I think I'm perversely lucky because I've got this constant glucose monitor, and I can see what my blood sugar is. It does my blood sugars every five minutes. And uh, if my blood sugar is in reasonably normal range after having done something like that, I feel successful. So most people who don't have this problem wouldn't feel successful. You just feel like a total failure. I'm guessing. I would if I didn't have this problem. You know, um, I feel like, oh, I had that, but look, I've managed to overcome it physically, medically. So that's that's how I deal with it. It's probably not helpful for you. <laughs> Yes. How do you work your 11th step, given that you're an atheist? Oh, how do I work my 11th step, given that I'm an atheist? Oh, I didn't answer, I didn't repeat the prior question. For those of you who are stuck in with me, the prior question was, what do I do when I have eaten something I wish I hadn't? Uh, How do I work my 11th step? Um, I begin almost every morning on my knees, praying to a God I don't believe in. Um, I... I uh, say the first, second, and third step. I meditate for a few minutes most mornings. I read uh, two, three. I read three 12-step books. And, um, you know, I, I go to meetings, some meetings, where there is, if there's a minute of meditation, that's not sufficient for me. But if I know I'm going to a meeting that day where there are five minutes of meditation, that's about all I do anywhere. I wish I did more, but I don't. So if I know I'm going to a meeting with this five minutes of meditation, I don't necessarily feel I need to meditate before I leave the house. So. Are we done? We're done. Thank you. <laughs>